From The Cut and Gimlet Media, this is The Cut on Tuesdays. I'm your host, Molly Fisher. I started to write when I was in a lonely place, and I was writing really for me and not for publication and not for anybody. I was a way of talking. It was a way of talking then. So I talked to myself a lot. This is Toni Morrison talking to PBS back in 1977, which means it's Toni Morrison before she was fully established as Toni Morrison. She'd just published her first book seven years before. And listening to her talk, you can hear someone who's still getting started. I certainly hope that I am a successful writer. But I know that if uh, there were no publishing companies left in the world, I would still do it. It's a little crazy to listen to this now. You hear the name Toni Morrison, and you think of the literary legend, a regal Nobel laureate whose books are a fixture on family bookshelves and lists of great American novels. That's the version of Toni Morrison that a lot of people my age and younger grew up with. And she helped create a world where more people could imagine themselves doing what she'd done. So this week, in the wake of her death, we wanted to hear from women who grew up in that world, about how they first made their way to Morrison's work and what it's meant to them over the years. She was a deity already before I was born. Like, it was understood with the human people, like, oh, this woman is, she's everything. We'll start with Brittany Luce. She's co-host of The Nod. My mom... She stayed at home with us. And so Oprah was always on 4 p.m., at least on the East Coast. It's 4 p.m. after school. And Oprah was not shy about choosing Toni Morrison for her book club picks. Brittany's mom watched Oprah, and Brittany's mom bought those books. So they were always around the house. And they felt familiar long before Brittany had actually read them. Even just the picture of Morrison on the jacket. She looks like a grandma. She looks looks like like a cool auntie grandma. And she also has such a, I mean, Tony is like such a, Tony, Rhonda, Rosalind, like these are all good, like auntie, sister, cousin, grandma, friend names. Uh-huh. Like if your friend is named Rosalind, Tony, Rhonda, like this is somebody who you're going to be on the phone with, uh-huh, uh-huh. like three o'clock in the morning laughing. They always have the tea. Like she just had a name that was just so like, Tony Morrison. It's like, it's, it's a complete sentence. I read The Bluest Eye. How old were you? I was probably 15 or 16. Uh Uh-huh. Because it was around the house. And it had an Oprah's book club pick stamp on it. And any of those books that were in the house, I read them. The Bluest Eye was Morrison's first novel. It came out in 1970. But she'd started it years before in a writing group at Howard University. And for a lot of the women we talked to, The Bluest Eye was their first taste of Toni Morrison. It's a book that might catch your eye if you're 10 or 13 or 16 years old. It tells the story of an 11-year-old girl growing up in the 1940s. She thinks she's ugly. And what she wants more than anything is to have blue eyes, like a white girl. I was growing up in this, like, mostly white suburb. I felt like I was sort of out of step with most of the other people around me. But I didn't have the language for it. Uh And so when I first read um, The Bluest Eye, I was reading it sort of for the plot. And I was like, this is sad. I had an understanding in the, like, situationally in the book that she thought that whiteness could save her from her life. But, like, I didn't have a sophisticated understanding of how 
that same sort of system of oppression was making me feel a certain way. Probably because maybe it was like too, a combination of too obvious and too painful for me Mm -hmm. to be able to connect that back to my own experience in a way that like really would have made me feel like totally like, oh man, I'm fucked. When she first read The Bluest Eye, Brittany wasn't focused on what Morrison could tell her about her life right now. She was more interested in what Morrison had to say about her possible future, about all the things she didn't know yet when it came to being an adult. The mother and the father began like having a sexual relationship. And there was some way that she described it, something like about feeling all of the colors or something Mm. like that, which is basically euphemistic for having an orgasm, I think, or at least experiencing some sort of like carnal pleasure, let's say. And like, it was just the most delicate, but most tawdry, like, I was like, this is a door I haven't hit yet. Yeah. I haven't had that experience with somebody else. Yeah. So I'm like, oh, my God, this Mm. is, this is like something interesting. And it was also, Mm. because it wasn't just about the feeling or the event. It was about how that relationship drew her to this, bound her to this man. Yeah. And it felt like real grown woman stuff. And I was like, shit. It gave me a window into this idea that something else transpired when you had sex with somebody. It wasn't just like this, um, this like physical experience. Mm -hmm. There was so much, there's so much else attached to it. It was like you and another person really, um, working together or just not working together. Yeah, it was more like a collaboration. Yeah. It was just sort of like it piqued my interest. Yeah. And it made me be like, oh, there's more here. So that was what caught Brittany's attention the first time around. But a few years later, she read The Bluest Eye again. And this time it hit her in a new way. It was the first semester of my freshman year at Howard University, which is where I went and also where Tony went. I was in an all-girls dorm And so the first semester, we're all in freshman composition. It's like our English class. And they have us read The Bluest Eye. Mm -hmm. And um, reading The Bluest Eye among all of those Black girls at Howard, where she went and where she taught, and they're teaching this book. Um, I didn't think about how deep that was, but that was a pretty deep experience. At night, they'd sit around the dorm talking about Toni Morrison. I had never really been around that large of a group of Black women at once. Hearing Black women from a variety of shades, brown skin, dark skin, light skin, like, you know, different types of hair and all different types of facial features and everybody sort of opening up about how they had experienced colorism Mm -hmm. or how they hadn't or realizing that they hadn't and realizing what sort of like what was insidious about that. Yeah. And not fair about that. And so it was like just like that book was an entryway to so many um, conversations that I had that I cherished uh, with so many women who are so close to me now. I think that I felt pity when I read the book the first time. Mm. And I think that the second time, only three years later, I think I felt um, understanding. I think that was always the magic of Toni Morrison's books. How do you think it would be different now were it not for your experiences reading Toni Morrison? The thing about Toni Morrison is I think for every Black woman, especially every Black American woman, she made you feel like you deserve to take up space. Like there was a, like, I don't know. It's like there's this quote that she has. 
She is a friend of my mind. She gathered me, man. The pieces I am, she gathered them and she gave them back to me in all the right order. It's good you know when you got a woman who is a friend of your mind. Like that is, that is how I think she's like the best friend, the smartest friend, like the most, like the friend that, like reading her books felt like just having somebody just make sense of you. Toni Morrison wrote books that got passed from hand to hand, maybe from your mom or your cousin or a slightly older, cooler friend. So I first encountered her through my older sister, who, she's seven years older than me. Zoe Haylock is a news writer at Vulture. Last week, she actually wrote up the blog post that broke the news of Toni Morrison's death. And she remembers first taking Morrison off her sister's shelf. So when I was about 11, I remember just sort of hanging out in her bedroom while she was doing something completely different, not really paying attention to me at all. And I was just sitting around and to try to get her to talk to me, I was like, oh, which book from your bookshelf should I read? And I'm pretty sure she was very like blase. It was very much <laughs> just like, um, read The Bluest Eye. So I just decided I'll read the book and then I'll have something to talk to my sister about. And she'll notice me and it'll be great. While Zoe was trying to impress her sister, the book itself snuck up on her. Reading how Morrison's protagonist felt about Shirley Temple, she recognized something she'd felt herself. Like the books and the TV shows that are filled with white heroes that I really desperately wanted to be, but couldn't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or like couldn't fully see myself in. Who do you remember wanting to be? Or who, who was like that to you when you were 11? One that comes to mind immediately is Rory Gilmore. Like I love Gilmore Girls. It's a good show. But I remember wanting to like go to a boarding school in Connecticut and have her hair, her hair would like be in a braid down her, down her back sometimes. And I remember being like, oh, like her hair is so beautiful. And those Alexis Bledel eyes. Those are some big blue eyes. (laughs) Yeah. So for me reading it, it was like two main lessons. One, racism, bad. And I sort of already become very familiar with that. So I was like, okay, that. Mm -hmm. But then also the idea that these characters in books and in TV shows I wanted to be so bad weren't weren't the solution to finding who I was as a person. A friend and I were talking about this recently. You know, like the question was, what is a book that you know you were way too young to read? And uh, for me, it was The Bluest Eye. Aminatou So is co-host of Call Your Girlfriend. She discovered Morrison through The Bluest Eye, too. And even though it's a book about a kid, it's dark. Not just because it's dealing with racism, internalized and otherwise. It also tells the story of a child who's raped and who becomes pregnant with her father's baby. I read The Bluest Eye probably, I want to say I was nine or ten. I was a very, very precocious reader, so I just picked up everything around the house. And I remember very much realizing as I was reading it that this was not something my parents could know I was reading. And I just, I remember just feeling so, uh, you know, both this feeling of like, wow, these are really adult themes, but also these are things, these are things that are happening to me. I'm a survivor of childhood sexual assault. And reading this book was really, um, it was really eye-opening. I remember just feeling really affected by the, by the story and saying like, okay, this is not a thing I can talk to my mom and dad about because I like grew up Muslim. There was like a lot of shame. It was somebody who was like very close to our family as who was abusing me. But 
this book was a place that I could dive into to really just like to, to process. I just kept thinking like, oh, this is a thing that happens to people and it's obviously very bad, but also it will not destroy you. Like I think that for me, that was the overarching feeling. It made me feel like less alone. Every time I pick up that book, it's something that it, it hits me like a ton of bricks every time. Seeing your life mirrored that way in a book, it's a powerful experience. And as Amina got older and got to know the rest of Morrison's work, she realized it was bigger than any one story. It was a whole way of thinking about what stories could be and who they were for. You know, just how much pleasure and pride and urgency she took in the fact that she wrote about Black people for Black people. I'm thinking about the interview that uh, I like. I watch it all the time on YouTube, and now I can't think about um, who the interviewer is, but actually who cares who the interviewer is. The clip Amina's talking about is from an interview Toni Morrison did in 1998 with the Australian journalist Jana Vent. Vent, who is white, looks very serious as she turns to Toni Morrison and says this. You don't think you will ever change and write books that incorporate white, white lives into them substantially? I have done. Mm. In a substantial way. You can't understand how powerfully racist that question is, can you? Because you could never ask a white author, when are you going to write about black people? Whether he did or not, or she did or not. Mm. Even the inquiry comes from a position of being in the center. And being used to being in the center. And being used to being in the center. Mm. And saying, you know, is it ever possible that you will enter the mainstream? It's inconceivable that where I already am is the mainstream. And she really just like flips the question on its head. And she's always like, you know, like all of the questions I get like center white people. And actually like, no, like that's like that's racist. And I she's like, I center myself and I center black people in my work. And there's nothing wrong with that. And I was like, this is true. It's like, I think about the, you know, the canon that I read in college and high school and, and Toni Morrison pointed to that. She's like, you know, like nobody's asking Tolstoy, like who he's writing for. Yeah. Like, are you writing for, you know, like for young Russians? Is this only for Russians? Right. You know, but I just, I, it sounds so, I, you know, like I'm obviously making light of it and being a little flippant, but I think that for so many of us, that was, that was game changing, you know, and she, She never shrank. She wasn't provocative. She wasn't, you know, she was just telling the truth about who she was. Mm -hmm. And and I really appreciated that. It always seems particularly unfair that when someone dies, they're not around to help you through their death. The one person you don't get to hear talk about Toni Morrison dying is Toni Morrison. But death is something she came back to again and again in her writing. After the break, a ghost story. Welcome back. Today, we're hearing stories about discovering Toni Morrison. And for some of the women we talked to, after finding Morrison for themselves, they wanted to spread the word. Gloria Adam remembers doing just that. She's the founder of Well-Read Black Girl, and she is also a big sister. I had a habit of, like, reading to my little brother a lot, and I would read to him books that I didn't understand. <laughs> and I read to him Beloved. Whoa! Yes! Which was, like... How old were you? Oh, my gosh. I was young, too. I was probably, like, 12 or 13 years old. Wow. And my brother's five years younger, so he was completely terrified. But I remember, like, reading these scenes and him being like, stop, because Beloved is a ghost story. It's like, scary. It's scary as hell. 
Beloved tells the story of a mother who escapes from slavery and chooses to kill her daughter rather than let the baby be taken by slave catchers. Years later, the daughter haunts her family as a literal ghost, just as the legacy of slavery continues to haunt America. It's a lot for a seven-year-old or a 12-year-old to take in. Like, going into, like, what is slavery with your little brother is just kind of like, uh, well, I don't really know either, but um, let's just kind of keep going. Toni Morrison does that. She makes you want to move through it, even, like, the hard parts. She makes you want to, like, read through the struggle and understand what she means because she is so... I mean, she's Toni Morrison. So even as a young person, I knew that I wanted to, like, take this on and I wanted to have this experience. And doing that with my brother was really, was really fun. For him, maybe not so much, but for me, reading out loud to him and being, like, having him captivated by Morrison, too, it, like, bonded us. It was our thing, so the thing that we did together. At the same time, did you like scaring your little brother? I did, of course. I just, <laughs> I thought, like, we're five years apart, so I do come off very, very, like, big sister. Uh-huh. And so I did love the fact that he believed everything I said. And sometimes when I was, like, quoting things, like, he just thought, he didn't know that was Morrison. He thought I was making up the story. <laughs> you got <laughs> you to know? beat Tony Morrison right, when you were right. reading it. <laughs> you know, and it was just, like, my, my moments of feeling, like, I'm in charge, and I, I have a command of language, even though that's not the, the words I would have used at that point. But it was just, like, it felt very adult and very, like, refined, you yeah. know? Like, I understand this. How do you think your life would be different now if you had not read Toni Morrison? Oh, fuck. I mean, oh, man. I mean, so much of my identity is built around Morrison's fortitude and her ability to make you not question yourself. Mm. Before I read Morrison, for sure, I, like, lived in self-doubt. I didn't know if I had permission or was allowed to be as outspoken and as bold as I wanted to be, even within the creation of Well-Read Black Girl. Saying Well-Read Black Girl in itself is a statement, and I don't know if I could have came to that conclusion without Morrison, to feel just really uninhibited and free to be myself. When you're reading as a kid, it's easy to grab on to whatever seems most sensational in an adult book. Maybe it's sex or a ghost. You come back to it later, though, and things shift. A ghost story isn't just a ghost story. It's a different way of thinking about death. Caitlin Greenidge is a writer. A few years ago, she was teaching a literature class, and she decided to make it about ghost stories. And, of course, everything that she writes has a ghost in it. There's always a haunting. There's always a, a dead person in it. Of the many things that she writes about, one of the things that she's really interested in is is this sort of like moving back and forth between these worlds, between the living and um, she never calls it the dead. She always calls it the not living. And so I started to think about her work in those terms as well. When Toni Morrison writes about death, she doesn't treat it as something final. And Caitlin says that's drawing on a larger tradition. And that sort of other way of thinking about um, what death means is very familiar to anyone who um, is familiar with death in African-American cultures or um, just the African diaspora in in general. Um, It's an understanding of death that's based on this idea that death is not a finality and the dead are with us and our, our past is with us in a, in a very real way. And haunting is not something that is frightening or a curse or a bad thing. 
it's just another sort of fact of existence and you're sort of existing on these multiple planes and multiple layers and you move through those things and they can affect your daily life, your material life, your spiritual life, depending on whether or not you are willing to reckon with those things. Writers reckon with ghosts all the time. Anyone who writes a book has to confront all the books that have come before and decide how to claim a place alongside them. Years ago, Caitlin was a kid who pulled the bluest eye off her parents' bookshelf. Now, Caitlin's a novelist herself. She and all the other writers we spoke to have just begun to reckon with Morrison's ghost. We die. That may be the meaning of life. But we do language. That may be the measure of our lives. That's from the speech Toni Morrison gave when she won the Nobel Prize. And as people have eulogized her in the last week, those are lines they keep coming back to. But the part that comes next is worth remembering, too. Morrison used her speech to tell a story. She describes a wise old woman who's blind and a group of young people who approach her with what sounds like a trick question. They tell the woman that they're holding a bird, then ask her whether it's living or dead. The woman waits a while before giving them an answer. She says, the bird is in your hands. Once upon a time, visitors ask an old woman a question. Who are they, these children? And what did they make of that encounter? What did they hear in those final words, the bird is in your hands? A sentence that gestures toward possibility or one that drops a latch. Perhaps what the children heard was, it's not my problem. I'm old, female, black, blind. What wisdom I have now is in knowing I cannot help you. The future of language is yours. All the women we talked to said how their encounters with Morrison had opened the door to their own work. How she had told them, in one way or another, the future of language is yours. I went to an event that she was at, and I just sat close to the front row and grinned at her like an idiot. But <laughs> I, I didn't try to speak to her because I was shy. This is Angela Flournoy. She's a novelist. Angela saw Toni Morrison on stage just a few years ago. And at that point, Morrison certainly could have rested on her laurels. She had all the laurels in the world to rest on. But what she did on that stage was she pulled out a legal pad, and it was something she had written, like, very, very recently. And she read it. She was still working, you know. Um, she was older, and she was, you know, in the wheelchair, and probably had various ailments, but she was still working. And that was something that was kind of like a kick in the pants for me because I couldn't find any reason for it to not be the right time, you know, to work. Angela first read Morrison's work when she was a teenager, and it sparked something in her then. Years later, it was still sparking something. Morrison is a writer to discover and rediscover. And even now that her work is everywhere, reading it for the first time can still feel like finding something that's just for you. Back when the writer Ashley C. Ford was in junior high, she was always getting in trouble. It wasn't that she didn't care about school. It was that no one at school seemed like they cared about her. She was always frustrated with their arbitrary rules and lessons. I was sitting in classrooms 
reading books along with my teacher and being ferociously bored (laughs) because the books just didn't have anything to do with the lives any of us were living. Because she was always questioning the teachers, she was always getting sent to detention. But when she was there, all she wanted to do was read. And one of the few Black instructors (laughs) in my middle school was also the detention coordinator. So he, you know, seeing this was like, you really don't belong here. (laughs) You know, um, I'm going to send you to the library. And the librarian actually was super mean and did not like any of us. Like she just, I still don't know why she became a school librarian because she clearly hated kids. But I was in there, you know, and I'm going through the books and she's like, I and me. And I just, I'm like, let me just find a book and sit down. So I went and I saw this book and on the cover was a little black girl and the way her hair was parted and the darkness of her skin, especially because at that time, every book looked like a still from like the scene from Dawson's Creek or something. It was always just, it was always like book covers for teenagers or young adults were always just like white kids dressed like they listened to a lot of Kurt Cobain. And so I pick up the bluest eye and it like, it just looked familiar. It looked like looking at a picture of my grandma when she was a kid, you know, or, or even like my mom when she was a kid. And I sat down and I started reading it. And I didn't look up for the rest of the hour. Like, I just didn't look up. I didn't look up until the detention coordinator came to the library and was like, hey, it's time to go. And I was like, can I check out this book? <laughs> and, <laughs> and the librarian goes, no. <laughs> and, he, <laughs> and he was like, wait, what? She can't check out a book from the library? And she's like, well, it's not her library time. And so like, he was like, okay, let's all calm down. I'm pretty sure she can check out the book. And she let me check out the book finally. I took the book home and I finished it that day, which was not uncommon for me. I've always been a fast reader. I love to read. What was uncommon was that after I finished it, I went back to the front and started it again. Here's the thing about that book. At 12... I read it and couldn't really understand it. I couldn't really understand the emotions and the depth and the depravity and and all of those things that were built into this gorgeous novel. I couldn't see them all clearly, but there was something about that book that told me, like, this is what writing can be. And it just opened up this world for me about not just finding good stories, but also the interesting ways that stories could be told and the powerful way that stories could be told. And before I read The Bluest Eye, to be perfectly honest, I don't think I knew that anybody cared what a little black girl thought or how she felt. I thought I had been born into a world where nobody would care who I was, what I thought, what I could give, what I could contribute, how much I could love, my huge capacity for love. In some ways, school made me feel like that. In some ways, my home life made me feel like that. In a lot of ways, the world and media made me feel like that. And I read this book and realized it had been written by a Black woman and that it was about a Black girl 
and a black world and a black past and a black family, you know, and black pain. The thing about Toni Morrison's life for a lot of writers like me, especially black women writers, is that she doesn't just give us permission to write our world and our lives and our language, but she also gives us permission to write whatever the hell we want. I have a place that is mine. That's my work when I write. Mm -hmm. That's mine. Mm -hmm. This is Toni Morrison on Oprah in 2011. It is free. Uh, Nobody tells me what to do. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't listen if they did. Mm -hmm. It's all mine. It's my world. I have invented it. These are my people. This is my language. Mm. And now I have come to believe that everybody needs one of those places. If you have never read Toni Morrison, don't feel ashamed about it. Here's Aminatou So again. Just pick up a book and start anywhere. Just start anywhere. Because I, I'm never going to get to experience her for the first time again. And I'm really jealous of the people who will. That's it for this week's show. We're off next week. So we'll see you next, next Tuesday. Also, we are working on an episode about anxiety. And we want to know the weird ways that you self-soothe. Are you watching TikTok when you can't sleep? Are you a stress baker? Do you reorganize your underwear drawer when you feel like your life is falling apart? And why is that the thing that works for you? Give us a call and let us know at 920-368-3341. Again, 920-368-3341. The Cut on Tuesdays is produced by Sarah McVie and Olivia Knapp. Our senior producer is Kimmy Regler. We're edited by Lynn Levy and Stella Bugby. Mixing by Emma Munger and Peter Leonard. Our music is by Haley Shaw, Emma Munger, and Peter Leonard. Our theme song is Play It Right by Sylvanesso. Special thanks to John Hoppenthaler, Allison P. Davis, Ruth Spencer, Saeed Tejan Thomas, Katya Bachko, and Erica Schwiegershausen. The Cut on Tuesdays is a production of Gimlet Media and The Cut.